What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Fame, divorce, mothers, paranoia. These are just some of the many topics Pink Floyd tackles in its epic concept album, The Wall. Today we get to the heart of why this remains a classic album 35 years later. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Later in the show, we conduct a classic album dissection of Pink Floyd's The Wall. But first, we talk music and science with fellow public radio host Ira Flato. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions, and don't adjust your dial. You haven't entered into a weird alternative universe of public radio. Our guest is Science Friday host Ira Flato. Ira, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for inviting me. It may not even be Friday when you're listening, but it is Science Day here on Sound Opinions, Ira. And we wanted to have you on to talk about the meeting of our worlds, uh, music and science. Mm-hmm. Every so often, Greg and I will talk about a new story that covers a scientific study dealing with music or a musical trend that is telling us something about science. So we thought, why not get the preeminent voice of science on public radio in here to chime in and give us some insights? What do you think? Sounds good. Let's do it. Our first study comes from Sweden and the Karolinska Institute. In an experiment that looked at 1,200 pairs of identical twins with the same genes and 1,300 pairs of fraternal twins with half of the same genes, the scientists ran various tests on the twins that played musical instruments, dealing with pitch, rhythm, and melody. Now, the results of the study suggest that the genetic makeup of a musician is much more important than the hours of practice that goes into mastering an instrument. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is the old nature versus nurture question. <laughs> Which is more important, what your genes or, or what uh, you know you you practice uh, in nature? And listen, you're talking to a guy who can't play uh, hangman because I can't draw the stick figure. <laughs> so I, you know, so I, nothing, no accordion <laughs> in your background, no, no. Oh, there is. Uh, who told you about my accordion? I did. I took accordion lessons when I was about seven for about three or four years. I got up to maybe Lady of Spain and then called it quits because I could not do all that stuff. I couldn't, yeah. you know, couldn't do it. And, and, and it proves what you're saying. No amount of practice mm. that I tried on the accordion helped me become a really deft player. Or could I had to always look over the keys with my eyes, which you're not allowed to do, little buttons. Yeah, yeah. Else. I cheated, but it didn't help. 
I know that you also sometimes have this philosophical side, especially when talking to scientists who are probing yes. the furthest reaches of the cosmos, right? I mean, this mm -hmm. is somewhat distressing because as, as critics, right, Greg and me, we've spent our career trying to deflate that romantic capital R myth that, you know, some people are geniuses and the rest of us are mere mortals. But it seems like, yeah, well, there's like a genius gene for some musicians. Well, there's, you know, and I think that the the gene, that genius gene carries over into all of the arts. It carries over into science. And you know what's interesting about musicians, you bring up the genius gene, is that there is a definite uh, correlation between musicians and mathematicians. Well, well that explains my, my drumming deficiencies. I can't do a square root to save my life. Uh, well, but I used to be able to hit in a Gata DeVita solo on the uh, my desk. <laughs> on the accordion. In my desk in, <laughs> yes. in, in seventh grade. I could hit that. I could... Yeah, I could do that pretty that's well, pretty but you know, that, that's that not was... bad, Ira. You got a you got a second future there as a as a street corner musician. I think that's but it. This is fascinating stuff because we we do get told these stories over and over again to the point where we believe they are facts. In fact, Malcolm Gladwell wrote this book where he said, you know, you put your ten thousand hours in, you're going to be really really good at whatever you put your ten thousand hours into. You also hear about these prodigy kids. Like the reason so-and-so is such an amazing technician on the piano or the violin is because they started playing when they were four years old, you know, and they, and they put in all this time, and here they are, this genius musician. And this study seems to say all that's bunk. Yeah, I think so, and I think that spills over into any kind of art form and even science. They show You show an aptitude. There was a famous mathematician named Gauss who, in, in thir when he was in the mathematics arithmetic class, I think he was only five years old, the, the, as a punishment, the teacher said, you're all going to add up the numbers from 1 to 100, and you're going to sit there until you're done. <laughs> and all the kids started doing this, and after about 10 seconds, Gauss raises his hand, and he's got the answer. Right. And the teacher yeah. said, how did you do that? He says, well, if you take 99 and 1, that pair, you, that, that equals 100, and you got 50 pairs of that, there you go. Here's the answer to that question. How did you think of that, you know? <laughs> the, the great physicist Richard Feynman was legendary for those sort of pranks and tricks and, 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 yes. and almost magical tricks. Greg, what about that scientist we had on who was saying he could predict a hit? Yeah, we had Dr. Gregory Burns on the show to talk about his experiment, which asked teens aged 12 to 17 to listen to different songs while a functional MRI machine recorded their neural reactions. Mm -hmm. They were also asked to rate the songs, and a few years later, one of those songs apologized by One Republic did become a top 10 hit. And Dr. Burns noted that those neural responses actually predicted this. So brain responses can correlate to hits. And the data was even clearer for flops. What do you think about that? This wasn't the guy who produced all the Beatles albums, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it, right? He should have been. <laughs> he should have been. I, I don't know. That does, well, you know, I'd like to see all the data on that. But uh, again, this could be an outlier in all the statistics. Sometimes things pop up. We have we have a bunching of numbers. You have bunching of cases of cancer, for example, that seem to say, "Hey, you know, there's mm. there's something that is something else is going on here, and maybe it's just one of these things that is a pure statistical anom anomaly." It's interesting because you know, I, you know, I had a couple I had a couple of teenage daughters. They're not, they're they're out of their teens now, but uh, you know, they they were uncanny and saying, "Dad, you got to pay attention to so and so." You know, they're they're on top of these artists months, sometimes a year ahead of where the culture is because they're getting this stuff mm -hmm. on the internet and they kind of understand what their what their what their peer group is interested in. To me it's almost common knowledge that, 
you know, a teenage girl is going to be pretty good at, you know, determining what's going to be popular because they know how other teens think. I mean, isn't hmm. isn't that just sort of on a, how do you well, explain Justin Bieber then? You well, know, they, they lo- <laughs> but they love him. You know, you ask, a, you know, uh, back in the day, Justin Bieber was everybody knew who he was and probably long before you and I did, Jim. Don't well, ask Kanye West to tell us all the truth about all of this stuff and how it works. <laughs> I'm going to throw a, an example back at you. There was, there was a guy named Charles Lim who's a professor of head and neck surgery at Johns Hopkins. And uh, he reports uh, there's a study of, of the brains of jazz musicians while they improvise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, we did the story on Science Friday. They created a tiny little keyboard that he could take in to the MRI with him as they were scanning his brain. Yeah. And there's a theory about jazz musicians where they constantly communicate with each other. For example, they'll, they'll do trading fours, you know, in, in the jazz. One musician plays four bars, and then another one does, and they go round and round. going on in the brain while the musicians were doing this. And so he, he, he had them do this in the MRI machine, and he found something really interesting is that there really is a language. The language center in the brain lights up when they are doing this trading of fours. But as opposed to language, the center in the brain with about meaning of the words was not activated. Mm. So while you, so while you, like when we're speaking now, and I don't know what the next words are coming out of my mouth most of the time. That's why I'm in this business. Um, <laughs> the, you know, your my brain is is putting these words together, but it it creates a sentence that has a meaning. You understand what I'm talking to you about, as opposed to what's going on in the musician's head. They're putting the notes together, but it could be interpreted. By anybody else, the way they, you know, they, there's no one interpretation of it. It's fascinating that the brain can work in this way and that a, a 15-year-old kid is as smart as a, you know, multi-million dollar A&R executive or probably smarter yeah. in predicting what's going to well, be Well, we know that. <laughs> <laughs> See, what you don't feel about what we know about in science, which is very true, and we know that failure is an option in science. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and failure is what drives science all the time. You don't hear about the failures. It's like, you know, doing um, chipping away at a stone and suddenly you get everything that doesn't matter and then the head pops out. of You know, it's sculpture. <laughs> yeah. um, but you can't do that at MRI. Right, right, <laughs> and in, right, right. In the music industry, too many failures and you're now, you know, selling pencils someplace. Let me ask you about another one uh, we just read about in Scientific American, uh, Ira, because it would be interesting to get your take. You know, they're saying, these scientists are saying that music changes the way we think. 
depending on what kind of music we listen to. So this gets real muso. I was never a musician. I'm just a drummer, right? But a tritone is is a gap in a piece of music that is considered sort of dissonant and unpleasant. The example they used was the uh, Simpsons theme song, right? Dun, 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 right? Whereas, do you know uh, the song Miss Jackson by Outkast? No, but if you hum it, I'll fake it. <laughs> oh, sorry, Miss Jackson. <laughs> it was a big hit a couple of years ago. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. That's a perfect fifth. That is one of the more pleasant intervals between notes in in Western music. So people who listened to the tritone, the tough-sounding break, were less likely to order things in a list afterward when they were said to, uh, you know, put your grocery list in order of where you'll put things away, right? Mm -hmm. They were kind of confused and all over the place, whereas the people who were drawn to the perfect fifth, the more melodious interval, were much more organized. And that that seems strange to me, that that we we can get you organized or disorganized, kind of kind of happy or unhappy based on the pauses between notes that we play you. You know, what's interesting about that, that sort of that sort of dovetails with a story we did on Science Friday a couple of weeks ago, which proved that if you want to learn or remember something, it pays to be distracted. Hmm. You know, all these people we yeah. were always hearing don't you know sit down at your desk and sit there for hours and just don't get distracted. Well, it turns out to be wrong that you can listen to music at the same time and it might actually help you learn stuff. See, I, I, I always listen to Science Friday, and I heard that piece, Ira, and what I heard you telling me is it's okay to slack off and just walk around or do nothing. <laughs> I really like that story. I made me feel good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you don't want to do too much of nothing because we also did a story where this was the most fantastic one we've done in a while, that if you put guys in a room for 15 minutes with nothing to do, no distractions. They would rather shock themselves with electric current than sit there and do nothing. <laughs> they just don't know how to handle nothing to do. You know? oh, so, not too much. Nothing okay. is a tough place to be. You know, this whole idea of producing a concrete mindset out of these kind of ephemeral things like music, you know, abstract things, is really fascinating. And I, I think you might have a point there. It, it, you know, the distracting the mind a little bit can be a good thing for actually getting concrete thoughts. At least this is yeah. what this study seems to be suggesting. You know, and, and famous people. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I do my best thinking in the shower or driving where, I'm, you know, there's like white noise or just road and road and road. Uh, get, get you thinking about things. Einstein used to say, uh, when you asked him a problem, he used to say, hmm... I I'm going to I give a little tink is how he pronounced <laughs> right, it. Right, right, right. And he would go on. He'd had a had a walk every day. He would go out and just walk and think about things. Right. Something going on in your brain. Where does the creativity come from? So Ira, are you a music fan? Do you listen to music yourself? Uh, you know, I do. For, for pleasure. Uh, I do. And and you've got some stories related to that, right? What kind of stories are you talking about? <laughs> we we saw this thing that you tipped us to that some people just no matter what will never like music. And oh, maybe it's yeah. just ingrained. Oh, that one. I thought you were going to ask me about <laughs> why I like disco music still. Um, which is my dirty little secret, and I'm not telling anybody. You know, I had, I still have my John Travolta outfit from back, from way back in the day. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> and, you know, I see what you're asking. Yeah, this is really, this is really interesting that there are some people who just 
don't like music, and they never listened to it for some reason, and they wanted to find out why that was. <laughs> and the funniest part of the story is that they wanted to do some research with them, so they said, well, bring in your CDs. And they said, you don't get it. We don't have any CDs. Wow. <laughs> we wow. don't listen to any music. Wow. So for something, for some reason, there is there there's this thing, you know. It's called spe- specific musical anhedonia. Wow. There's an actual name for it. People don't like music. Yeah. It sounds uh, like an awful really disease. Do, they, really, they really do exist. Yeah. From hedonism and hedonia, I guess that's sort of the same And so, so you're anti-hedonistic, anti-the pleasure. I mean, you know, you know, food, music, and, you know, yeah. being with a loved one. I mean, those are about the three best things in life. Uh, to take one off the list and you're, you're hurting. Well, you know, and, and they, when they tested these people out, they had control groups. So they, they put all sensors on these people and the control groups all reacted – uh, like a lie detector, are you reacting to the music? And all these people who did not like music, uh, they just didn't. Nothing showed up. Like it's, they had like a, a line, a straight line on these tests. And uh, wow, they weren't dead, but they were breathing. But they just <laughs> didn't. They might as well have been. They liked money. <laughs> now, is, is there a can I, maybe they were the producers? Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh. They're the guys. The they're the guys who run the record so companies. The yeah. industry. Right. Yeah. Well, Ira Flato does like music. He's a former accordion player. He's a disco fan. So, Ira, you know, on Sound Opinions, everybody is a critic. And with guests right. who we've really enjoyed chatting with, we play this Desert Island jukebox game. So, not mm. to define you for all time, but for today, mm. at this moment, what record would you? Now, I know this is scientifically impossible. If one were stranded on a desert island, there is no power, right? right. For, set aside that stuff <laughs> from your mm-hmm. scientific mind. What album or what record or song would you be stranded with? The the Bee Gees, you know? I have to have my disco. I need the Bee Gees. You weren't I kidding about staying that. Staying alive. I was not I was not kidding, you know? I When my kids were all seven, eight years old, we were young, we used to just dance around the, the living room with the Saturday Night Fever album on. And, uh, and to this day, I quietly, when I'm on a long drive... I turn on my Bee Gees albums and no one's there to criticize me. Hi, Reflato. Thank you so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. What do you think about the relationship between music, science, and the brain? We even want to hear from those of you suffering from specific musical anhedonia. Call 888-859-1800. Coming up, 35 years of Pink Floyd's The Wall. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
there anyone home? Come on, come on down. I hear you feeling down. Well, I can ease your pain, get you. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is the song Comfortably Numb from Pink Floyd's 11th studio album, released in November 1979, The Wall. That makes it 35 years old this month, the same month in which Pink Floyd will release its first album of new material in 20 years. Now, The Wall happens to be the best-selling double album of all time, and one of the top 10 selling albums of all time, period. It's certainly a magnum opus by Pink Floyd. But is it Pink Floyd's best album? I don't know. We'll get into that later. No, it's a, it's a remarkable album. The longevity is incredible. I mean, we're talking 23, 24 million copies sold in the U.S. alone and still still selling to this day. It has a resonance for a generation of music listeners out there that is unparalleled by any album of that era, I think. Let's look at how they got there. Pink Floyd was already one of the most successful bands of the 70s when they started working on the wall. They had put out the album Animals in January of 77 and followed it up with what was then considered the biggest stadium or rock tour of all time. I mean, the fact that a rock band, four guys, were playing stadiums everywhere around the world, that was fairly unprecedented at the time. Remember that tour, Jim, or at least you've seen pictures of it, the idea of the flying pig and all these animals floating over the stadiums. You know, think about the time. This is the punk rock era. It was just dawning. Everything was being stripped down. Let's get back to basics. And then here Pink Floyd was playing stadiums with all these inflatable props overhead. It was somewhat of an alienating experience for the band. Although Waters had all these grand plans, the execution of it, left him rather cold. He felt like they were so remote from their audience at this point that he was no longer really enjoying the tour. And he was pulling away from the other band members. Waters would show up at gigs on that 77 tour in a helicopter while the other three guys in the band, David Gilmore, Nick Mason, and Richard Wright, would show up in a limousine. So they were barely speaking to each other. They were basically just performing these shows. Waters, who gave very few interviews, would sneer to some of his confidants during the middle of this tour. You know, these people are just showing up to drink beer. They're not here to listen to my message, to my music that well, I poured my heart and soul into. A key song on animals is sheep, mm-hmm. and he saw his audience as sheep. Not that he had disdain for these people, but he wanted them to engage with the music on the same deep intellectual level that he did. Indeed, and it built to a head on the last tour stop in Montreal in the summer of 77, where Waters actually spit in the face of one of the fans in the front row. He didn't really explain or justify his actions other than to say that it was a buildup of many months of despairing over the way this music was being received. And as he was driving away from that gig, he was talking with a couple of people, a couple of confidants, including Bob Ezrin, a famous producer in the 70s, who was a friend of his girlfriend's at the time, Waters' girlfriend. She worked as his secretary. Yes. And he was saying, you know, I just feel like building a wall between Mm. myself and this audience. That's the way I feel right now. And, And that was sort of the beginning of this idea of the wall as a 
concept album. I think the thing that freaked him out is that he spit in this kid's face, and the kid liked it. <laughs> now, this was happening. Yeah. You know, that sounds vulgar today, right? But you got to remember, but the, the punk way of showing appreciation for a band was he would spit at right. the group, the Clash or the Sex Pistols. I think that's part of what freaked him out. It also has to be said, Greg, that... This tour was not only one of the most successful ever, but Pink Floyd had gotten beyond their wildest dreams success with The Dark Side of the Moon. And then they followed it up with two more albums that did almost as well, Mm -hmm. almost unprecedented in rock and roll. You think of like Fleetwood Mac has Rumors, Michael Jackson has Thriller. Almost nobody is able to to duplicate that success. And Pink Floyd's, you know, Wish You Were Here at Animals hadn't duplicated it, but they came really close. Well, the one upshot of all that success was that I think Waters sort of viewed himself as the band, the conceptualist. When, When you go back to the dark side, the first major breakthrough, they were still all pretty much collaborating. All four members were, if not sharing equally in it, at least there was a sense of camaraderie and collaboration. With each subsequent album... Waters began seeing himself as the idea man, the man with the grand plans, the the major songwriter, and the other guys were just kind of there to execute his ideas. Which is a problem when you have a guitarist like David Gilmour, <laughs> who have, you know, he's, is he a virtuoso like Eric Clapton or Jimi Hendrix? No. But you know what you can say about Gilmour? Nobody else's guitar sounds, sounds like Gilmour. Nobody like in it. the history of rock and roll sounds like that guy. Absolutely. Gilmore, in his own way, was a, a fine songwriter. As you said, the tone on his guitar was instantly distinctive. He had a great feel for melodies. He brought a lot to the table. Plus, he was a great singer. Yes. A uh, much better singer than Roger Waters. Who can't really sing. Yeah. Right. So Waters needed these guys. But by the time they got done with the Animals Tour in the summer of 77, there was a sense of whether this band was even going to continue. They did not like each other at that point. But a financial crisis ensued. It turns out one of their accountants was scamming them, and they wrought millions and millions of dollars as a result. This guy eventually got sentenced to three years of jail in the 80s. But meanwhile, the band suddenly had this shortfall of cash. Suddenly, to the other three members, Roger Waters' ideas about songwriting and creating an album sounded a little bit better to them. Okay. If Roger can give us another hit, let's yeah. let him do it. They're looking at you know that time-honored British superstar rock thing of becoming <laughs> a tax exile. Yeah. You, know, you get out of Great Britain for a year, and anything you create during that period, you don't have to pay taxes on back at home. This is how it was back in the day. The Rolling Stones had done it. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, Pink Floyd does it. Waters moves to Switzerland. Nick Mason moves to the south of France. It's a hard life, right? And Gilmore and Wright by small Greek islands. And Gilmore and Wright both released solo albums. There's a lot of talk about is Pink Floyd going to record again. Apparently, all this time, Waters is on a songwriting binge. Even though he's troubled by the relationships within the band, all of this turmoil is just fueling the songwriting process. He comes up with not one, but two concepts for albums during this period away. Finally, the band gets back together. They gather and say, okay, what are we going to do next? Roger Waters presents demos for these two albums. One is called The Wall, the other The Pros and Cons of Hitchhiking, which would become one of his first solo albums.
the band looks at these two pieces of work and starts uh, analyzing them, Gilmore in particular. Ezrin has now been brought into the process. He is a famed producer at this point. He's in his 20s. He's eager to make his mark. He had worked with Kiss. He has worked with Alice Cooper. He worked with Lou Reed on that song cycle, Berlin. So Waters kind of knew that this guy had the chops to keep up with him, and he wanted to bring him in on the process. So Ezrin and Gilmore in particular are looking at these two albums, and they hear more of a song-oriented approach on the wall. They toss out the pros and cons of hitchhiking. They decide, okay, this is the one we want to work on. Let's focus on this. Ezrin is also looking at this, and he said, Roger, this album is really all about you. This is your album. This is yeah. a solo album in everything but name. It is about his personal story, his growing up in England without a father. His dad had been killed in World War II, basically raised by a single parent, his mother. His experience in schooling, his, his experience with authority figures, all of them pretty negative. Yeah. And pouring all of his fears and his sense of isolation and despair into this massive work. We're talking about 26 songs here, Jim, yeah. which is more com- than the previous three albums combined. Ezrin looks at this work and has a great sense of the big picture. He says, Roger, this is so insular, so personal, it's great, but in order for this to be a Pink Floyd album, we somehow need to make it more universal. So Ezrin took a lot of those concepts and and drew up a storyline that sort of created this character, Pink. And and apparently, you know, there would, would be the question that would emerge, which one's Pink? Because the guys in Floyd were famously anonymous. They didn't do many interviews. When they performed live, it wasn't about the personality. It was always about the music and the, and the spectacle. So here they are, ready to record. Ezrin has helped out with the big picture concepts. Waters is ready to go into the studio and start recording. The other guys aren't so sure, but they need the money desperately. So, okay, the wall is ready to go. You know, Greg, this concept album was the band's 11th release, but it wasn't an easy one for this long-running champion of art rock and psychedelia to make. Keyboardist Richard Wright left halfway through. This left the writing and recording to the other members, David Gilmore on guitar, Nick Mason on drums, and, of course, the songwriter Roger Waters. I think all of the key members of Pink Floyd, as they drifted apart musically and geographically, it made for a tense setting, and the album took the better part of a year. They start out recording at Britannia Row, their longtime home in London, but decide that the equipment's just no longer up to it. They did some demos there. They were going to upgrade the studio, but then the tax thing kicks in. They can't stay in England anyway. Two different studios in the south of France, near Nice. Then they go to New York for a while to do the orchestrations. The orchestral parts are contributed by a fellow named Michael Kamen. He'd done a little bit of stuff for Clapton. He'd done a little bit of stuff for John Mellencamp. He worked with Bowie. He's recording members of the uh, New York orchestras, the Philharmonic and the uh, Symphony. Then they wind up in L.A. to mix. As it is, Nick Mason did most of his drum parts at the very beginning. He just stopped coming. He did what he had to do, and he figured, okay, you need an extra verse, just duplicate the tape and splice it in. You want to cut out a verse, just cut it out. Nick Mason's living, as I said, in the south of France. He's an aficionado for 1920s race cars, Mm -hmm. and so he's just racing around France, right? (laughs) Rick Wright, the most underrated member of Pink Floyd, the keyboardist, and his keyboard sounds are every bit as distinctive as what I was saying earlier about Gilmore. 
Wright had the same sort of way of approaching the early Moog analog synthesizers, the Hammond B3 organ, and he really had had a producer role on a lot of the earlier records, although they always credited to produced by Pink Floyd. He was a little bit at odds with Ezrin, because now they have an outside producer, and that was traditionally his role. Waters is getting more and more angry with Wright. Wright is only coming in in the middle of the night and recording his parts when Waters isn't there. Meanwhile, although Ezrin had been really helpful to Waters, he's got it in for Roger now, because Roger told him, you're not getting points on this record. Points are a system whereby the producer gets a percentage of all the records sold. You know, they were paying Ezrin for his time, but they're not giving him a piece of it. Gilmore always believes that his musical contributions to Floyd, and really, many Floyd songs are not songs without the Gilmore guitar solo. The whole story of Pink Floyd is the conflict between the ideas and the music. When they're together, it's brilliant. When they're not, you're in trouble. All sorts of weird stuff begins to happen in the Los Angeles settings because this is not just a double album. This is the blueprint for a theatrical production. So weird sound effects are coming in. They're hiring a young actress to play the voice of the groupie Trudy Young, who would go on to uh, voice some of the Muppets, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is the groupie. Are all these your guitars? I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to This place is bigger than our apartment. Let me know when you're entering a room. Yes, sir. Uh, can I get a drink of water? I was wondering... Do you want some? Huh? They had initially planned to have the Beach Boys do backing vocals on The Show Must Go On and Waiting for the Worms, but they couldn't get all the Beach Boys, so they got Bruce Johnston and Tony Tennille mm-hmm. of the Captain and Tennille. Yep. All sorts of strangeness with the, the way that the orchestra is being synced up and the way the sound effects are being dropped in and it's all coming together. And everybody, by all accounts, after nearly a year, hates each other and can't wait to finish it. But Waters wants to do a handful of shows. They're going to stage the wall several times, playing it in its entirety in London, in Los Angeles, and in New York. And I got to tell you, Greg, I was a sophomore in high school. My parents indulged me. We drove from Jersey City, New Jersey, to the Nassau Coliseum in Hempstead, (laughs) Long Island, so that I could see the wall. I had my ticket. I was there with a high school buddy. And it was amazing. But... Even as a young rock critic, there were some problems. I mean, I loved Pink Floyd. They play the wall. They build the wall. They tear the wall down. And then I'm like ready for some animals and wish you were here. And then that was it. But, you know, they destroyed the stage. It was still something to see. There's a heavy-duty story behind this album, obviously. 
the, the authority figures, he lines up one after another, ad- addressing a song to each one of them uh, along the way that had helped build the wall around him as a person throughout his life. You know, his mom, his teachers, his wife, becoming more and more isolated from society until in the second half of the album, he absolutely goes mad. He starts to see himself as this fascist kind of dictator figure. And then we start melding into these ideas where the rock concert becomes like like a dictatorship, like a political rally that sort of puts another layer onto this character's isolation from society. He feels so removed from it, now he's starting to become this authority figure himself and telling the crowd what to do, and the crowd is responding in kind. Are there any queers in the theater tonight? Get them up against the wall. It becomes almost like this meta concert where you feel like you are now isolated as Roger Waters, the character Pink that he's playing on stage, has become. Now there's one in the spotlight, he don't look right to me. Get him up against the wall. After the break, Greg and I wrap up our classic album dissection with our favorite tracks from Pink Floyd's The Wall. But first, we want to remind you to share your sound opinions on the wall or anything under the rock and roll sun at 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. Jim and I are in the midst of our classic album dissection of Pink Floyd's The Wall, which is about to turn 35, hot on the heels of the first new release from Pink Floyd in nearly 20 years. We should talk now about some of the songs that we love from The Wall. 
I mean, there's plenty to choose from. 26 tracks over four vinyl album sides, a major work by any standard. Jim, for me, the, the, the track that stands out the most is Mother. Again, one of those authority songs, obviously directed at the parent who raised him. He who says, well, this is more about a more generalized song. But it's clear that a lot of this song, a lot of this music is coming from Waters' personal experience. He was raised by his mother. His father died in World War II. And as a result, her way of keeping her son close was to smother him. At least that's the way he portrays it in this song. And that in itself led to certain insecurities about his ability to venture out into the world and experience it. The mother becomes this dictatorial figure in his life, and he is unable to go out into the world as a young man and experience it for himself without his parents' guidance. He does not throw stones at this parental figure who obviously meant well. And additionally, what I love about the song is that it is a great collaboration between him and Gilmore. Even though the two of them were no longer really on speaking terms, the beauty of their collaboration is very apparent on this song. And Gilmore sings one part and Waters sings the other. Yeah, so Waters is pink and Gilmore is the mother figure in this song, and they're answering back and forth. And it's basically the two of them playing most of the instruments here. Ezrin, the, the producer, plays the essential organ and piano parts, and as you mentioned, Jeff Porcaro is on drums because Mason was not in the studio. One of the story goes that the song was in 5-4 time, mm. and, and Mason couldn't handle it, so that's why the studio guy was brought in. By the scale and standards of, of The Wall, which is this huge monstrosity of an album, this is a very intimate and poignant song, and, and very sad, too. So it's Roger Waters and David Gilmore of Pink Floyd on Mother on Sound Opinions. Mother, should I trust the government?
That is Mother by Pink Floyd from The Wall, the album work dissecting on its 30th anniversary. Greg, you know, as someone who loved, even at 16, and and I gotta say, The Wall is an album meant for 16-year-olds. I knew that musically and lyrically, we had heard this from Pink Floyd before. Albums like More and Obscured by Clouds, Adam Hart Mother, had done the kind of idyllic, countryside acoustic Pink Floyd. And the song I'm going to play next, we'd heard that sound before. The heavy metal Pink Floyd, we'd heard it in the Nile song and in the nastier parts of Animals. In fact, I would say that conceptually and musically, The Wall is nothing but a retread in a lot of ways of The Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and Animals. We'd heard this business of all the things that alienate you from society. We'd heard this thing about how lonely and miserable it is to live in the modern world in general and to be a filthy rich rock star (laughs) in particular. These were all familiar themes. But there's something about the cartoon scale of The Wall, and it's there right in the cover art, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the cartoon depictions by Gerald Scarf of those figures, the mother, the teacher, the wife. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with a good comic book, right? (laughs) You know, I think this is one of the best comic book moments. The song I'm going to play next, Run Like Hell. Pink Floyd, I will say, never rocked as hard again as they did on this song. As it became the Gilmore-driven, corporate-named Pink Floyd, but Mm -hmm. not really a band anymore because Waters left, you know, they got softer and softer, more and more somnambulistic. As Waters went off on his own, he had a heck of a lot of ideas He didn't have any songs anymore. He didn't have any tunes. Gilmore was a great sonic craftsman devoid of ideas. Never have two guys needed each other as much. Here it was still gelling. This is one of the more Gilmore-heavy songs, although Roger is weaving it into his magnum opus. It's just ferocious. Run Like Hell by Pink Floyd on Sound Opinions.
That's Run Like Hell from Pink Floyd's The Wall, Jim DeRogatis' pick as the track, the keeper track from that album. Well, mainly because you got the mother first. I love that one, too. (laughs) Jim, you may remember that back in 2010, Roger Waters took The Wall back out on tour by himself, 30 years after the original tour with the full band. You know, this was him really wanting to showcase his magnum opus and let the world know that he created this thing, and it was his work, and he's going to stand by it. Uh, Remember that you were one of the lucky few that got to see The Wall presented in its original incarnation with Pink Floyd, Jim. That show was staged only 31 times previously. At the time, you know, a $2 million production, it was not an easy thing to take out on the road at a time of $12 concert tickets. Yeah, uh, I think I paid 25 Now, the overhead is quite a bit steeper in 2010. Waters was charging as much as $250 to see this show. He hired a 12-piece band to support it, and it was enormous. We both saw the show a few years ago when it came through Chicago for the first of four nights, basically a residency. And I remember thinking back then how the show had lost none of its appeal in terms of a visual spectacle. I mean, the show was crammed full of not just bricks, I mean, 424 bricks to be exact, but ideas. Yeah. Let it never be said that Roger Waters is a man, you know, one of the most brilliant musicians of his time. Clearly one of the most thoughtful stadium rock spectacles ever staged. You know, I think to bring it up to date, Jim, Waters wanted to sort of put this political spin on a lot of this material as well. It's not just the personal work about the isolation of an individual, but now it's about the isolation of nations from each other in the world. Well, during intermission, every brick in the wall, 424 of them, the house lights are on, but they put faces of people Mm -hmm. who've died in Iraq and Afghanistan, but also civilians from 9-11 and children from those countries where we're at war, it makes no sense to me. That actually offended me. Really? Because, yeah, because Waters started by writing about his father dying in World War II, and it was very personal. What it had to do with Iraq and Afghanistan and those those heart-wrenching losses people have suffered in those countries, I have no idea. It felt heavy-handed to me. Other Pink Floyd songs like Us and Them on Dark Side of the Moon had been mm-hmm. anti-war, but there's nothing really in the wall, aside from, the you know, Bring the Boys Back Home, which... Is a powerful musical statement if he just let the song play. Well, that's interesting. I, you know, I thought that was an affecting moment. Given the times we're living in, I don't begrudge him the idea of sort of making it more contemporary and extending it into that sort of geopolitical sphere. I think there were probably some people that are offended by it, too. And I salute him for his courage because I think he knew that a lot of his fans were not going to like some of the messages that are, that are steeped in it. More problematic for me... Just looking at the music itself, this is the least elegant Pink Floyd album, yeah, you know, yeah, without, without sure. a doubt. I mean, I think it is harsh, and, I don't, and God knows I love harsh music, but the beauty of those melodies uh, that really made those earlier Floyd records is not so much in abundance on this record. There are great peak moments on this record, but there is a lot of filler in here that's difficult to listen to. As a two-hour work, it's very up and down musically. The yeah, soundtrack well, the, for, the, for The Wall doesn't really work for me completely. That Brechtian finale of yeah. The Trial, which was mostly written by Ezrin, is just unlistenable. Look, not for nothing was this Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins' favorite album of all time, okay? <laughs> this is an album about excess, and, and you're right, but it's still a lot of fun in a comic book way. That wraps up our classic album dissection of The Wall. If you want to comment about the album or share any of your own sound opinions, call 888-859-1800. You also can email interact at soundopinions.org 
or talk to us on Facebook or Twitter. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have a live performance from Broken Bells, which includes The Shins, James Mercer, and Brian Danger Mouse Burton. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Alex Claiborne. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, my name is Ned Brower, and I am the drummer of the band Rooney. I've had the pleasure of working with a guy named Mike Viola, singer-songwriter, has often been underappreciated and has a whole bunch of buried treasures. It occurred to me that he had heavy hand in producing the new Ryan Adams record and the Jenny Lewis record, which I feel are sonically stunning. And having worked with Mike, I know how big of a force he was on both those records. Hi, this is Mitch Linker from Bloomfield, Connecticut. I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh, I don't know what I'd do without sound opinions. However, more often than not, I disagree with you guys, and I really disagree with your review of the Bob Seger. That's not to say I love the album. The main thing about him was his voice. Way up firm and high Out past the cornfields where the woods got heavy Out in the back seat of my 60 Chevy and that's the problem I have with your review. You didn't talk about the fact that he had one of the best voices in rock, and that now he doesn't. He hasn't had it in decades. And his voice now, with all the atrophy, is the main reason people shouldn't be listening to his new stuff and why his new album should be dismissed. Working on a night moves Trying to make some front-page driving news Working on a night moves up the great work and uh, I look forward to being provoked in weeks to come. Take care. Hi, this is Andrew at uh, New London, Connecticut. I just wanted to let you know that I'm interested in indicating what bands of today represent the occult and mysticism. I think that uh, Depeche Mode is really one of those bands of the past couple decades that have really embodied the dark, mystical element of pop music, if not heavy metal. And I just wanted to say that Depeche Mode is probably the darkest band still existing today that really does embody the occult.
calling about rock music and the occult. This is Katie from Deerfield. The Smashing Pumpkins is a band I think of at Halloween time for sure, their name being the most obvious connection. For me, it brings up images of legends of Sleepy Hollow and Ichabod Crane, as well as like just pranks. Uh, But also Billy Corgan can be kind of a ghoulish guy. The promo materials for his solo concert at Ravinia and Highland Park this summer showed him wearing a black cape and looking like a vampire. And I don't hear the music of their band talking about the occult or mystery. I just don't get a deep connection from the pumpkins. It seems to me like they fall in the category of surface-level imagery when it comes to the occult. Black rooms are No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.